This past week, I watched once again an incredible documentary called Hitler's Children. It's a film about the descendants of high-ranking Nazis, all part of Hitler's inner circle. These descendants carry names that dredge up horrible images of the Holocaust's most heinous crimes. Names like Gehring, Gert, Hess, Himmler, and Frank. Including in this list of senior Nazis officials is someone who oversaw the concentration camps and ordered the killing of six million Jews, the founder of the Gestapo, the commandant of Krakow concentration camp, the commandant of Auschwitz, and the person responsible for the murder of massive numbers of Polish citizens. The documentary chronicles the way in which the descendants of these Nazi officials struggle each and every day with the legacy that's left to them by their parents, their grandparents, and their uncles. How can they balance natural family ties with such heinous crimes? How can they deal with the ever-present shame that inevitably rises up when doing such mundane actions as just signing their name? One descendant married as early as possible to change her last name. One sister and brother chose not to have children, thereby ensuring that the family line, along with any feared genetic predisposition to violence, ended with them. Others broke ties with their families, or wrote books and spoke publicly so that the truth might be a forever reminder, or traveled to concentration camps to face head-on the horrors committed by their relatives, or learned multiple languages other than their native German, or moved an ocean away. Now, thankfully, most of us aren't handed such a historical burden at our birth, and so we don't have to contend day in and day out with all the shame that comes from it. But our own personal stories, and those stories sprinkled throughout our family tree, often do reveal struggles with addiction, violence, poor choices, regret, betrayals of all scale and kinds, the incapacity to embrace transformation, and the pain that radiates from all of these. And so all of us, at least to some extent, are faced with this question, can we change? Are we obliged to live our entire lives in the shadows of the past, in the darkness cast by the sins of our youth and the well-defined family ruts of our family history? Our DNA, our last names, the lines of worry on our faces, our resumes, our ill-fated detours, do these things determine our lives to such a degree that free will is just an illusion and newness of life merely some pipe dream? The things we miss during our early development, at some point are they missing forever? When do we lose the idea that we can be or do anything we want and giving up just transpose the music of our dreams into more fitting keys? How much of who we are do we receive from the world and how much do we actually create? These are the questions that underlie today's readings. Ezekiel writes at a dark time in Israel's history. Jerusalem has been destroyed, the temple reduced to rubble, and her people forced into exile, all at the hands of the Babylonians. 
And one of the main innovations Ezekiel now brings to Israel's theology is the idea of individual responsibility. Previously in the book of Exodus, God warns Israel not to make any idols, adding, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. So are those now in exile destined to pay for the sins of their ancestors at least for a while? Is there any reason to hope for change, to think that things can be different in their own lifetime? But then Ezekiel comes and reports that the guidelines have changed, relaying to the people these words from God. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Know that all lives are mine. The life of the parent as well as the life of the child is mine. It is only the person who sins that shall die. I will judge you, O house of Israel, all of you according to your ways. So according to Ezekiel, Israel has the chance even now to do things differently, to be transformed, to receive a new heart and a new spirit, to turn and to live. It's a possibility the psalmist trusts in as well. He implores God not to remember the sins and transgressions of his youth, but instead to remember him according to God's love and compassion. And in the Gospel reading, we see that the ability to change is a prerequisite to the kingdom of God. The son who changed his mind and went to work in the vineyard, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they all change while the chief priests and elders can't bring themselves to. Now, frankly, change didn't come easily to the Israelites in exile either. When Ezekiel tells the people that only the one who sins will pay for those sins, the exiles reply with, the way of the Lord is unfair. You would think that they would be grateful, right? But change is hard. There's comfort in stability, even a bad stability. And besides that, there are two other things that keep us stuck where we are, and they are actually two sides of the same coin, shame and pride. Shame, the idea that we can't change, and pride, the idea that we don't need to. But to become mired in either shame or pride is to miss out completely on the good news. And there is good news here. <clears throat> Because the good news is that who we are and who we can become is both a function of that which we receive from the world, both good and bad, and that which we create for good or for ill. No matter what, who we become is going to always be continuous with our past. When the work of salvation takes place in us, we don't become totally different people. Our history isn't like a slate that's wiped clean. Instead, who we are, the choices we've made, the sins of generations before us, the families that surround us with both love and brokenness, all these things remain, but God redeems them. See, salvation in the Bible is never suffering avoided or suffering erased. 
Instead, salvation is always suffering transformed. But while this transformation is always primarily an act of grace or redemption, it isn't a work that's done without us, as if it were zapped into being from on high. Transformation and newness of life is always first and foremost the work of God, yes, but it includes us as well. We take what is given to us, sorting it both unconsciously and consciously, deciding what we will keep and what we will let go of, deciding what fits with who God created us to be and what doesn't. We let go of things each and every second, thousands of tiny deaths in a day, millions of resurrections in a lifetime. And even those wonderful things that we've received from the past and all those wonderful new possibilities that open up before us, we still have to make those our own. As it's been said, God has no grandchildren. I think this process is what it means for Paul to say that we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God at work in us that enables us to do that work in the first place. Today we have the great joy of baptizing Christopher David Rep, and he has a wonderful family, mother, father, older brother, grandparents, aunt, many more godparents. Um, and as he grows, not only will he have the family into which he was born, he will have this family as well, the family of the church. Each and every day he will be given the opportunity to receive again a new heart and a new spirit. Each and every day he will be given the responsibility to remake himself, to take what he is given in terms of history, tradition, experience, and all these new opportunities, and to take those and then to participate in God's ongoing creation in his own life. Like all of us, he will live into his baptism through a million deaths and resurrections, working out his salvation with fear and trembling, with joy and wonder, and most of all, with God's immense love and grace. Amen.